0: Good morning welcome to Southwest uh, those of you who are in the building and those who are watching online we're so glad you've joined us for week five of our one series so focusing on uh, just oneness and so we have a few things that we want to make you aware of this morning first off we have an event coming up in a few weeks titled one voice and so this is kind of a you know a culmination and ending of our one series and so this is going to be a night of worship and prayer that we're going to have at North Park it's going to start at 7 p.m. And what we really want you to do for this night is think of one person or one family that you can invite. This is going to be a really powerful night and we'd love for you to be there. Also on that Sunday, we're having a baptism Sunday. And so this will be a day that we kind of celebrate and we want uh, as many baptisms uh, as we can. And so, you know, if you're thinking about baptism, we'd love for you to reach out to us, uh, any of the staff, so we can uh, help walk you through those steps. Um, We're going to have them at both services on the 23rd. Also upcoming this week for our student ministry, we have a few things coming up tonight. Weather permitting, our high school group will be at uh, E. Milo Beck Park uh, at 7 p.m. We'll just be hanging out and doing our small groups from 7 to 8 on Tuesday. This will be our last high school lunch of the summer. Uh, not sure where yet so I'll send out the location over email to all of our high school parents that'll be at 1 p.m. on Tuesday and then Wednesday will be our last junior high small groups of the summer Uh, it'll be here at the church from 7 to 8 p.m. well let's worship this morning our
1: uh, band and team up here did a great job didn't they In leading us in worship yeah great job Larry Adams, our creative arts minister, is out of town on vacation, and uh, I'm just so encouraged by how God has blessed us with so many talented, uh, committed, uh, uh, creative people that come up here and, and lead us in worship together. That's, uh, that's great. I'm grateful for that. Let's, let's, let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for how you have uh, been at work in the life of this church and continue to be at at work, and Father, we're grateful for talented, creative people that you have brought into Southwest and and lead us in times of worship, lead us to to give you the praise and and the honor that you deserve, Lord, and so we acknowledge you as the, the author of all this, and we thank you for that. Father, I pray that you'll be with us as we continue this time of worship, as we open up your word and read from scripture. I pray, Father, that you'll give me the ability and the wisdom to communicate the things on my heart, the things I've studied and prepared, but I just pray for your spirit to be at work in such a way, Father, that you will break through and help us really, really hear what we all need to hear today. And so we ask, Father, you to be at work, and help us just to uh, be amazed at how you want to speak into each of our lives and our hearts and draw us to you. We commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're marking the halfway point of our current message series entitled, One. So let's use this time as we're halfway through this series to just do a little bit of review of the first half of this eight-week series. We began this series uh, uh, four weeks ago as we uh, gave a serious call to commitment and unity. And to do that, we began digging into a very important Bible passage that calls for just that. It's found in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. It reads, make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourself together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one glorious hope for the future. So after that introductory week, tackling verse 3, we begin working our way through seven Essential tenets of Christian unity that are all marked in this passage with the descriptor of one. Each of these terms are are essential tenets of the Christian faith. The second week of this series, we looked at the importance of being part of the one body, the church of Jesus Christ and making every effort to maintain unity with all believers within the body, regardless of our background, regardless of our color, regardless of our even our points of view, our socioeconomic standing. We specifically celebrated that although we live in a broken world where there is polarization and there's all kinds of, of uh, uh, prejudice and, and, and barriers between people, Jesus has broken down the hostility between people of different races, of different backgrounds, and we're called to live out that oneness together. I hope you've been thinking about that and praying about that and thinking how you can do your part to be united with others here at Southwest, but also how you can be united with other believers throughout this community. A second tenet for Christian unity is the one Spirit. During that weekend, that third weekend, we celebrated the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, who is one of the three persons of the triune God. And the Spirit guides us and transforms us. And my hope is that you've been experiencing the Spirit's influence in your life and in your heart since we talked about that. And then last week, Andrew and Nathan, while I was out of town, did a great job reminding us that although we're tempted to place our hope in a lot of different things, whether it be ourselves, whether it be stuff, whether it be substance that maybe we turn to in times of weakness, or maybe even in other people, but we're called to focus on one glorious hope, that hope of having that opportunity to spend eternity with God in heaven. Today we want to begin by looking at verse 5 when we we are told, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. What does it mean for us to be united under one Lord? You see, I believe this is a very important message, this, this message entitled, One Lord. You see, it's important for us to understand that there is great unity. There's a a possibility for great unity when people come together with a common commitment to follow one Lord, and that's the call for this week. What does it mean to be committed to one Lord? Well, first of all, we have to understand how that term Lord is used. It's listed as the fourth of seven essential Christian tenets. Let's see how the author, the Apostle Paul, used that term that's actually uh, Kyrios in the the original language, but in English is translated Lord. Earlier in the letter, as he begins this letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, he begins this way, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Although God the Father is often described as Lord, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, it appears that Paul is using this term Lord not to describe the Father, but the Son, Jesus Christ. As he wraps up to his introduction and transitions to a prayer, he writes this prayer in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And revelation, so that you may know him better. And I want to use this opportunity as we listen to this moving prayer that Paul had for these Christians in Ephesus to let you know that I am praying for you. I'm praying for this church. And I appreciate so many of you that have been praying for me and for my family as we have gone through a, a period of of experiencing two difficult losses in our family, first my mom and then my sister. I want to thank you for your prayers. I want to thank you for the cards of encouragement and notes and emails. And and although I've not responded to all of them, I just want you to know I appreciate each and every one of them. It's meant a great deal to me. Thank you. I also want you to know that after last week, uh, after the memorial on Saturday, we spent time with family in Indiana over the weekend. And and yet we got up Sunday morning, Jane and I did, to watch the Southwest live stream, so we could be with you. Even if we weren't physically with you, we could be with you in spirit. And, and I just want you to know, I have a much deeper appreciation for those of you who've been watching this service at home because I know there's a lot of distractions, okay? And so while we were watching the service last week, if you look closely on the TV there on the screen, you can see the band uh, uh, there pl- leading us in worship. And, and we had our grandkids in front of us, uh, you know, participating as well and wrestling at times. And, and I, I tell you what, it, it's hard to not get distracted when you got all this kind of activity around. And then you got this cute little one-year-old looking at you and, and I, told, I told Nathan, I said, you know, for his first time speaking last week, I thought he just did a fantastic job. He did great. I mean, it was, it was yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, but I told him, I've got to go back and listen to the message again. Because the first half of the message when Andrew spoke, my grandkids were pretty focused But when Nathan started speaking, I I heard his intro. I thought, man, he's doing great. And then I heard about every other word after that, okay, because I was getting distracted. But but I just want you to know uh, that experience was good for me because it showed me what it's like to be on the other side of that TV trying to watch the service with kids. And, and I have a much deeper appreciation. That's one of the reasons why we brought in video and, and we brought in different, different opportunities. We brought a song in the middle of the service just so that we can keep people's attention and focus as they're watching from home and maybe even some of our children and teens that are in the crowd here today. Now, next week, we're going to examine the one saving faith and the basis and standard for our faith. And yet, today, we want to look at the object of our faith, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. As verse 5 says, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And as one writer noted, it's It's not difficult to understand why one faith and one baptism are attached to one Lord. He is the object of his people's faith, and it is into him that they have been baptized. Yet, let's just pause for a moment, because I don't want anyone to be confused, because although our focus today is the person of Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that when we talk about the one Lord, that That's what we're talking about, is the person of Jesus Christ. We also understand that that term, Lord, is often used to refer to God. And so there could be confusion as I'm going through this message. Okay, is he talking about the Father? Is he talking about the Son? Okay, we're we're talking primarily today about the Lord Jesus Christ. And to help you see that this is how Paul typically used that term, one Lord, And and even in some of his other letters, let's look at how he used that term in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. He says, there's one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. Now, as we see from this Bible passage and others like it, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was with the Father and the Spirit before creation. And all three were involved in the creation event. These three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are the three persons of the Trinity or the triune God. The Christian faith does not say there are three gods, but instead there's only one God that we come to know in three persons, the Father, the Son, the and the Holy Spirit, who are in each, in their essence, God. An illustration that we use in our starting point class that that we think helps illustrate this difficult concept to grasp, and yet hopefully illustrates it in a simple way, is we point to the illustration of, of that important chemical compound, H2O. Now when I say H2O, most of you just immediately think of water, okay? And that's true, but that's actually just one way that we come to know H2O, okay? So for example, we have H2O that is water. That's the liquid H2O. But the solid H2O is what we would refer to as ice. And then the gas H2O is steam. Now each of, the, in each of these, water, ice, and steam, we come to understand this chemical composition of H2O. The substance is the same in all three. You see, water is H2O, ice is H2O, steam is H2O. The same is true with the triune God. The one Father in his very essence is God, he's deity. The one Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his very essence is God, God in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit that we talked about a couple weeks ago, he is in his very essence deity as well. All three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are deity. And yet in a mysterious way, they are also one one God. Now, although your head might be bursting trying to grasp this concept, I hope this illustration of H2O helps you get just a little bit clearer view and understanding of how to understand the triune God as we continue to wrestle with this mysterious oneness that exists. This is why the earliest followers of Jesus believed and confessed that Jesus the Son was also God. One of the earliest acknowledgments that Jesus was God was surprisingly made by a guy that we typically think of being someone who struggled with faith. It was actually a guy named Thomas. We often refer to him as Doubting Thomas. In John's gospel, we're told that that Jesus appeared the evening of the resurrection to the to the 10 of his first followers meeting in an upper room. And yet Thomas wasn't present, he missed out, which is a good reason why we don't wanna miss one of the meetings of the church, okay? Because when you miss a meeting of the church, either in person or online, you miss important stuff. Well, Thomas missed Jesus' appearance. And because he missed it, he just didn't take the word of other people when they said, we saw the Lord, And so yet a week later, we see that Jesus appears again, and this time Thomas is in the room. And let's read about that in John chapter 20 and verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, we're the people that Jesus is talking about there. We've never physically seen the resurrected Jesus, and yet, by faith, we believe He did resurrect. I've never seen the bodily resurrected Jesus, but with all my heart, I believe that He is alive. And because I believe he's alive, and because I believe of all the claims that are about him in the Bible, I too, like Thomas, declare him as my Lord and my God." How about you? Have you acknowledged Jesus that he is God in the flesh? You see that's part of what it means for Jesus to be Lord, that you acknowledge his deity. Yes, Jesus went to great lengths to come to, to to us, to our level. And yet, even though he came down to our level here on earth, he is to be exalted in our hearts. He is to be given all the honor worthy of deity. And this was the confession that the earliest followers of Jesus made. In fact, one of the earliest confessions, some think it was a creed, some think it was a song, is recorded in Philippians chapter 2. And this was the confession that the earliest followers of Jesus made. Therefore, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. With that said, I want you to just ask yourself, is Jesus your Lord and God? Have you acknowledged Him that place in your heart and in your life? with that said, let's pause and let's sing a song describing a worship of Jesus, worthy of one who is our Lord. Let's stand and sing. Yes, Jesus Christ is our defender and Savior, and he is worthy to be worshiped as divine. This is the confession that the church has made for 2,000 years. In fact, the church began on that day of Pentecost with Peter being the main spokesman. You can read about this in Acts chapter 2, as we see the very first public message regarding the resurrection of Jesus. And after describing the resurrection, Peter stated emphatically at the conclusion of his message, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah." What does it mean for Jesus to be both Lord and Messiah? Maybe some of your translations read they're both Lord and Christ. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word, which means the anointed one. The Greek word is the Christ. You see, some believe that Christ is Jesus' last name, but that's not the case. It's a title, it's a description, that he is the anointed one, he is the Messiah. It's interesting that the first followers called Jesus Messiah, or the Christ, prior to them calling him Lord. You see, to describe Jesus as Lord means that you acknowledge his deity, but it also means that you recognize him to be master. The word Lord means controller, leader, ruler, master. My concern is that for many, they've recognized Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. And yet the question is, have they declared Him to be Lord? This was the case for me. For many years, I I longed for Jesus to be my Savior. I wanted that promise of eternal life. I, I wanted Him to be my defender. I wanted Him to remove the guilt from my life, but I wasn't too sure if I wanted Him to lead my life. I wasn't sure if I was ready to relinquish control and let Him be the ruler, the boss, the master of my life. And then I began to wrestle with a number of Bible passages that talked about the lordship of Jesus. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it states very succinctly and yet very clearly, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, it's important to realize that this was a passage that was written to the Christians who lived in Rome. They lived in a time and a place where they were under great pressure to say that Caesar was Lord, and that Caesar was the ultimate leader and ruler for them to pledge allegiance. And yet, Jesus came on the scene and His followers declared Him to be Lord. This is what I shared with my children before they were baptized. And this is what I share with children here at Southwest before they're baptized. For any young person that's considering baptism, that they are to make this confession, this declaration that Jesus is Lord. You see, for the Roman Christians, it took great courage to confess and declare that Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And my question to my kids and my question to young people here, my question to you is should 21st century believers have any less commitment or devotion or allegiance to Jesus than those first century Roman Christians? I say not. I say that we should place Jesus on the throne of our hearts and our lives. The early Christians had to decide once and for all who was going to be the ultimate ruler of their life. This is the way Jesus put it, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You see, it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord in a song or or maybe even in a declaration. Of a confession. And yet, the determining factor for us of whether or not Jesus really is our Lord is how do we live? And are we putting into practice His teachings? You see, this is the commitment to follow Jesus. It includes a Lordship decision, which is another way of saying that we are to commit ourselves to being His disciples where he is our master, our teacher, and we are his servant. He is our king, and we are his subjects. He is the leader, and we are the followers. This is why we state over and over again that our commitment here at Southwest is to be a church that is following Jesus, making disciples. We're called to be disciples. We're called to make disciples But we're called to understand that that means surrendering to the leadership, the lordship of Jesus in our lives as a church collectively and our lives individually, each one of us. You see, Jesus has called his followers to embrace his teachings on discipleship to truly be head, heart, and hands followers of Jesus. And to do that, we have to embrace teachings like this that he taught to anyone who wants to be his disciple. In Luke chapter 9, we read this. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. The truth is that you and I can't put into practice the teachings of Jesus in our head and our heart and with our hands and live it out if we're still trying to hold on to our life and our way. If we're trying to be in charge, if we're trying to call the shots and we're not willing to let Jesus call the shots in our life, then we're not going to be able to put his teachings into practice. Yes, it would have been a challenge for those first century believers to declare Jesus is Lord. Because you see, there was great pressure in their world to say Caesar is Lord. I've got a chair up here on stage, and I'm trying to allow this to think of this as being the throne of your life, the throne of your heart. And I know it's a pretty non-elaborate throne, but what do you expect in a worldwide pandemic? Okay, so, but, but, you know, for, for those early citizens of Rome, they had to claim Caesar as Lord. And to become a follower of Jesus in that culture, then you had to take Caesar off the throne and say, no, Jesus is Lord. And yet for most of us, that's not the challenge that we face, if we're real honest. I, I don't know. There might be some people that are so caught up in political ideology that maybe they need to take a thought, okay, who's really the leader of my life? But, but for most of us, that's not the challenge. For most of us, the question that we have to really wrestle with is self, Lord. As we think about the throne on our heart, the throne in our life, who's really calling the shots? Are we trying to call our shots? Are we trying to be in control? Do we want to do it our way? You see, that's what it means to have self is Lord. And yet to become a follower of Jesus, we say we're gonna take self off the throne and we're gonna make sure Jesus has his rightful place. Who's on the throne in your heart? Is it Caesar? Is it self? Or is it Jesus? Is he your master, king, ruler? I hope you've made him the Lord of your life. I hope you're living as if he's the Lord of your life. You see, to to call him Lord means yes, he's deity, he's, we acknowledge he's our God. My Lord and my God, as Thomas declared. But also it's, to declare him Lord means we've made that discipleship decision to make him Lord, the ruler, the controller. Have you made that decision? And are you living that decision out on a daily basis? Now with that said, we need to acknowledge what kind of Lord Jesus is. He's a good Lord, he's a good leader. This is the way the Hebrew writer put it. This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. You see, as we read Scripture and we read about the life of Jesus and the miracles that He performed and His great teaching and and the ways that He worked in such powerful ways, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of us declaring Him to be Lord. He's worthy of our devotion and our discipleship. The Hebrew writer continues in verse nine, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Did you catch what this Bible passage said? It says, yes, Jesus is Lord and Savior, and he's worthy of all of our worship. He was willing to suffer and experience death on our behalf so that we could someday experience glory with him and the Father. He is the pioneer of our salvation. Yes, he's Lord and God. Yes, he's Lord and Christ, Master and Messiah, King and Savior. Yet here's the amazing thing as we wrestle with this passage in Hebrews. Jesus, our Lord, doesn't treat us as a distant king or dictator who simply issues commands and edicts without caring. Instead, Jesus is a Lord, a leader who wants a relationship with us and is willing to call us brother and sister. Now that's personal. That's a personal Lord. That's a personal leader. Personally, I always wished I'd had an older brother who would show me the ropes and help me be tougher. In fact, I was convinced if I'd had an older brother, I would have made it to the NBA. I think I'm in denial, the fact that I'm 5'9", okay? But, but that, was, that was my thought growing up. If I would just had an older brother that could have made me tougher, I would have been better in sports. I, I'd have been tougher as an individual. You see, I didn't have an older brother. I grew up in a family with two older sisters. Many of you know that last weekend, our family said goodbye to my oldest sister who after a 17-month battle with cancer, eventually passed away. And now she's with the Lord. To give tribute to my sister Rita, I wrote a three-page description of my sister. I'm not going to read to you the whole three-page tribute. But I'm grateful that the presiding minister at her memorial read a good portion of it because I wasn't able to stand up and read it. It was just too emotional. But I'm gonna attempt today to read a portion of what I wrote. This is what I wrote. As Rita's younger brother, I've never experienced a time in my life that my older sister wasn't there to support me and to be an example for me. Rita Kay, as we used to call her, was six and a half years older than me. And she was the oldest child in the Rex and Martha Sue Hendricks family. She was a trailblazer in our family. She was the oldest among three children, the first to go to school, the first to drive, the first to date, the first to get a job, the first to go away to college, the first to get married, the first to retire and now she's the first to go to heaven. Although Rita Rita would later graduate would graduate from high school and college and get a teaching, coaching job and move away from home and eventually get married, she continued to be very supportive to her entire family and to her little brother. I'll never forget when I was in junior high and Rita was a college student, home visiting on break. She took time to sit in my bedroom and listen to me practice playing a drum solo for an upcoming concert, a band concert. Rita, who'd also been in band, in a marching band throughout high school, sat and listened to me play with tears in her eyes. Although the tears could have been from the fact that I wasn't very good and later gave up the drums. But I always interpreted those tears as a sign of pride and support of her little brother. I'll never forget the genuine concern and support that I felt from Rita throughout my life. Whether it was going to my Little League games, high school games, high school and college graduations, my wedding, my children's birthday parties, and later their high school graduations and their weddings visiting my house in Ohio to meet our first grandchild, and even to visit our church in Ohio to hear me preach. Even toward the end of her life, she would listen to my sermons online and send me encouraging texts almost every Monday telling me that I was doing a good job. I will truly miss my big sister and her continual love and support. And honestly, I'm having difficulty imagining life without her. Here's the good news. Not only do I have a big sister now in heaven, but I have a big brother in heaven. And his name is Jesus. He's my Lord. This is how the Hebrew writer closes this section. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't it good to know that we have a Lord that's worthy to worship and acknowledges God? We have a Lord that's worthy of our fellowship. He's master, he's leader, he's ruler. And yet, he's not that distant Lord that is uncaring and is checked out. He cares deeply for us. He cared so much that he would go to the cross and die for us. And when we take communion every week, we take the bread and we take the cup, we're reminded that he is that trailblazer who came from heaven to earth to show us the way. But he came down to our level, he experienced what we've experienced, and yet he overcame and he's now in heaven cheering us on. He's that kind of Lord, he's that kind of leader. I don't know about you, but that kind of, that kind of commitment to, to us, to me, inspires in me a commitment to him. And as we observe communion, as we take the bread re- reminding us of his body, And as we take the cup reminding us of his blood, let's realize that he's a Lord that was willing to get his hands dirty. He was willing to come here to suffer and die for us. And during this time of communion, let's give him thanks. Let's acknowledge him as Lord. But let's do the examination and ask ourselves, yes, he is a great Lord, a great leader, but where have I been lately in my fellowship? Where have I been lately in my discipleship, surrendering to Him in all things? Think about that. As I'll think about that. And let's examine our hearts during this time of communion. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for coming from heaven to earth to die for us. Jesus, we thank you and we acknowledge you as God and as leader, as ruler, as master. Help us during this time of communion to to reflect on how worthy you are of our worship. Help us remember the death you died for us. Help us remember that your presence You're cheering us on from heaven. And help us examine and recommit ourselves to being your disciples, truly following you with all of our hearts. Help us, Lord, during this time of communion to truly commune with you and with each other as we come together as one people, acknowledging you to be our Lord. It's in your name we pray. We hope that was a meaningful time of communion with our one Lord as we come together as a people acknowledging him as who he is. Next week, we're gonna continue this series and we're gonna talk about that one faith, that common faith we have. You know, we live in a world where people need faith. Who can you invite to come and join us next week? Who can you maybe even share this link with from this worship so that we can invite others to come and experience that one faith with us? I hope you have a great week, but let's have a great week of following Jesus as Lord.